Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about tech, including news, reviews, and maybe a rant once in a while. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh3. First, the introductions. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment publication on the internet. I'm Kevin Savitz, host of uh, Antic, the Atari 8-Bit podcast where I have interviewed more than 300 people from uh, the early computing, microcomputing days, and uh, I also do other things, but that's that. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. I also make mobile games that you can find at clevermedia.com. And I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer behind AskLeo.com. So, Gary, I hear there's been an issue with the Mac of this week. Something about a root password problem? Yeah, I mean, this, uh, I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> but there's actually not much to say about the problem itself because it didn't really last very long. Uh, as far as I can tell, the morning that it was reported, I don't know if that was Monday or Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday. Morning it was reported. Um, it was late morning, and Apple already issued a patch the next morning, so less than 24 hours after the initial you know, news hit. So Apple was really quick at patching this. Um, but what bothered me about it was the reporting was so bad on this. So the deal, the deal was that somebody could potentially get access to your Mac by going first into system preferences and then to users and groups and then clicking on a button to log in and then entering root as the username, clicking on the password field and then hitting return or hitting the, the okay button a couple times and then it would give you access. What it actually did was it created a root user account with a blank password, which is bad, but the headlines made it sound way worse because the headlines ignored, number one, the fact that it required physical access to the computer. It wasn't the kind of thing where somebody could, over the internet, get access to your Mac. Somebody actually had to be physically sitting there. A lot of these uh, exploits need that, but the headlines just don't sound as good if you throw that in there. You know, People don't get as scared uh, and don't want to read the whole article and everything. So there was that. And then there was all sorts of other misreporting around it. Like, for instance, I could never figure out or know for sure whether a second way to use this uh, at the login screen was actually valid because first people reported, hey, it works at the login screen too. And then, you know, which is really bad because having to work at system preferences means you need to be logged in. So somebody needs first physical access to your Mac and second to be logged in. So they either already need to know your admin password or they need to be sitting at your Mac after you've left it unattended and logged in. But people saying it's at the login screen too means that they don't they could just have physical access to your Mac, could be logged out and could get in. And at first people said, yeah, it works at the login screen. But then people said, well, it only works at the login screen after you first do it while logged in at, at system preferences. And that's like saying, oh, you know, somebody can break into your house after they've already broken into your house. You know, it's not nearly as threatening. And I tried it every way I possibly could to do this exploit at the login screen with all sorts of different settings, things on and off, and I could not get it to happen. And then people that swore to me that it worked on the login screen after I questioned them and really broke down what they were doing, they were doing it first while logged in. And then after that at the login screen. So they were 
they were pretty much wrong in terms of, uh, you know, that you could do this at the login screen. And I've never figured out how to do it. I never got positive confirmation that it could be done that way. So the reporting was kind of scary at one level if you don't know anything about the technology behind it because it just said there was a big exploit and it was bad. And then even if you knew a little bit about it, a lot of the reporting was bad because it kept saying you could do this at the login screen as the initial point of exploit, which didn't seem to be true. So it, it just it really bugged me. There's just like doesn't seem to be any um, point in tech journalism where you can actually read an article that coherently stated what the problem was and you know what caused it and uh, you know had the proper level of how how uh, how mad should I be that this exists? Is that what you you kind of find too, Leo? With with this oh, kind of man. thing? I, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, "Welcome to my world." Yeah. Um, this is the kind of stuff that Microsoft and Windows has been dealing with for years. Um, even the littlest hint of, of some kind of an issue, a vulnerability or whatnot, um, they'll take the piece that will generate the highest click-through rate and make that the headline. And then maybe if you're lucky, um, there'll be the details about exactly why it's not a problem. I've had this several times where, in fact, literally a couple of different vulnerabilities have gotten uh, mentioned about you know Windows over the years. And as it turns out, it's exactly the same. You have to have physical access to the machine first. And it's, it's like I said, it's, it's whatever generates clicks. It's whatever generates um, eyeballs. The other scenario, of course, and I think um, Randy actually mentioned this somewhere la- this week as well. You know, you have it on one source. You read about it on source A. And source A, when you finally do get to the bottom, maybe they'll tell you that it's at source B. Well, source B got it from source C. It's really, you know, three or four steps removed before you can actually get to the, the actual canonical source of the, of the report. Do you know and, what the canonical source was? It was interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Somebody found the exploit and posted about it on Twitter. They didn't tell Apple directly via bug bounty program or something. They were just like, wow, I found this thing and put it on Twitter. And it blew up there. And then people were just ripping him a new one, just being like, wow, you know, you should not do put exploits out that uh, like that out, out uh, in the public before you give the company a, a chance to, to patch it. So, yeah, the whole concept of responsible disclosure was uh, kind of sidestepped there. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting because if it was, say, a security researcher, any security researcher should know what they're doing and, you know, not to just make it public and do it through the proper channels. But every once in a while, a an exploit is revealed by somebody that is not. Now, in this case, I think it was a security researcher, though, just by chance. Uh, maybe I could be wrong about that. But, I mean, there is the possibility with something like this that somebody who has no idea what the proper protocol is discovers it and, and reports it. So there's, there's really nothing that can be done in that case. I mean, Is, is it really too much of a stretch to, th- to think that telling the world that every Mac might be vulnerable to something <laughs> is probably a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Another you know, you read this is true. You know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, headline I saw, or maybe it was a maybe it was a tweet or a mention or something, was somebody draw the drew the incorrect conclusion that all Macs had a root account with a blank password set, which was clearly not the case. As a matter of fact, you, I mean, you couldn't log in as root 
in the terminal. You couldn't log in normally as root or anything. You had to do this specific thing, which seemed to be a bug with this dialog box because you had to click in the field. And only after clicking in the field could you get it. You know, if you just tap through the field, it wouldn't happen. So clearly there was something in the security of that dialog box that was triggering this bug that probably was some debugging code that somebody had in place there. And did uh, I understand correctly that this was a bug that was introduced recently in like the most recent update? Yeah, it only existed, I think, in uh, 13.1 or something like that because they tried to reproduce on older ones. So, so yeah, but I mean, it was clearly like you could not, there was no root account that had just been sitting there waiting for everybody to log in. Esso would have been discovered way before that. And and the headline like at, at Gizmodo, I'm looking at the headline there because we're talking about headlines, and it describes it in the headline as a massive security vulnerability. I'd like to know if there was a vulnerability in, in Mac OS or iOS or Android or Windows, if it actually could be like accessed remotely by anybody. Um, if this is massive, then what would that be described as? I mean, that just catastrophic. I don't know. They probably would use catastrophic to describe this as well. I don't know. Yeah, we're running out of uh, adjectives then. Yeah. <laughs> Biblical proportions. <laughs> yeah, I remember those passages in the Bible about computer security flaws. <laughs> sure. That's what caused the big flood, I think. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. It was a, yeah, a checksum issue. <laughs> no, 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 no. Buffer overrun. Buffer overrun? Yeah, yeah. So, Gary, was it actually a root account or was that kind of beside the point which you named it? Yeah, no, it was, it, I, what it seemed to be was you were, by doing this exploit, creating a root account with a blank password. It's fairly easy to set up a root account. If you're already an administrator, right, you just, just by enabling root, there's a, there's a way to do it. It's a simple menu command, enable root, sign a password. And it seemed like this somehow was doing that but with a blank password. So it actually had super user capabilities. Yeah. So I was so going to say, Gary, for, since not all of our listeners might know exactly what root implies, maybe you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, well, in the Mac context, there's, there's not too much difference between an admin account and a root account. It gives you a few more privileges as root. Um, but, you know, root user or an admin user can do anything they want. They can install software. Uh, if you have a root uh, or you had a, have an admin account, you can use your password and and override any security thing that's going on. Say yes, I do want to install this piece of malware. You know, please install it and and enter your password, and it'll have to obey you. Uh, a root account is basically, I you know, I would describe it as like a a an admin account that doesn't have all the nice user interface stuff. The only use for it that I've ever had is if you're doing development work. And you need to go into terminal and like install Linux style things, um, then you sometimes need to log in as okay. Root. But but it's also super useful for installing root kits and key loggers. Well, sure, and stuff like that. Sure. Well, because they're they're in the same category in terms of security. Sure. If I'm installing a a development kit for me to develop, say, Android apps, you know, on the Mac, most of that stuff. If you're going to develop Android apps on a Mac, you're almost certainly going to have to set a root user, you know, with a password and then go into the terminal and install some things that only can be inst installed by root. So, but yeah, for the typical user, it's something they sh shouldn't ever touch and it they sounds, probably wouldn't even know about. 
It sounds like it's very much very similar to the administrator account under Windows. There is a, an account called administrator. Uh, that is its login name in recent versions of Windows. Actually, it's always been there. In recent versions of Windows, though, it's hidden by default. It's not enabled, much like it sounds like the root account isn't on a Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference being that you don't have to do anything to create it. It's already there. Um, and you do have to enable it if you want to be able to log in as administrator. That does sound similar. Yep. The Like I said, the only difference is it already exists. Um, but uh, most people don't. Most people, for, you know, for mo- when most people set up their Windows machine, it's very much like setting up your Mac. The account you create is an administrator account in the sense that it has administrative privileges. It can be administrator if you supply the correct password and, you know, log in that way. But it's not running as administrator all the time. Yeah, so the only, the only I guess the only question is here is can tech journalism do better um, in terms of reporting these things? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the answer is, is not whether, I think the question isn't whether can they do better. Of course they can. The real question is, will they do better? And that's, that's a much harder one to answer because their rewards are not based on accuracy. Their rewards for their journalism are based on um, clicks. Yeah, exactly. And, and the therein price, lies the problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the price is the a lot of wasted time. I mean, I know several people that that day wasted a lot of time trying to figure out what was going on, what they needed to do to prevent anything bad from happening. And they really didn't need to do anything. Their their Macs were not physically accessible by anybody else. And the the patch, you know, Apple patched it the next morning and it just wasted a lot of their time by kind of creating this panic. Did that patch itself also have a problem? I vaguely remember there was a a, a small, a very short domino sequence of things that the patch broke something and then the fix to that broke something else. I'm not sure. Yeah, it wasn't a security issue. If anything, it it messed around with people's file sharing ability. If they were, if you had certain set of circumstances and you were using regular file sharing, uh, say in your office or in your home, um, it disabled a couple things and you had to re-enable it. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal and it wasn't a security issue. So it, uh, you know, totally different right. magnitude. Right. Um, but, but you're right. I think the ultimate question is really about journalism and, you know, the, the elephant in the room of course, is that this is really just a symptom of a bigger problem because it's not just tech journalism that's suffering from this problem. That's true. So, Leo, a couple days ago, I asked you about the new sets feature that The Verge headlined as, quote, Windows 10 is about to get a game-changing feature, but you said we shouldn't hold our breath about that. Yeah, I kind of reacted to your statement. Um, It's funny because it's actually kind of sort of related to what we've just been talking about. Yeah. I don't know if it's game-changing or not, to be honest. A lot of um, uh, press, journalists, whatever, get uh, these pre-release evaluation versions of Windows so they can see some of the features, features and functionality that are under development. Normally, we advise most people to avoid those because they're, you know, they have problems, they have bugs, they're pretty much guaranteed to cause you problems along the way. But journalists love to, to mine them to see what's changing, what's coming down the road, and what's exciting. 
And to be fair, there's, you know, interesting stuff that happens. I tend to, I pay attention to the extent that, yep, that's interesting, but I don't spend a lot of time talking about it because so much can change. Uh, there have been features present in many of these pre-release versions of Windows that have never made it out the door. They got yanked from the Windows before it actually shipped to um, to the wider uh, wider audience. Uh, in fact, the article that I think uh, you mentioned, you found this on, uh, said something to the effect of, quote, that said, it's unclear whether the final sets version will be rolled out or whether it'll keep its initial name. It could take years before it happens, the report says. Um, that's out of the um, BGR.com? I think so. Um, article that, that we'll have, a, we'll of course have a link to that article in the show notes. Yeah. The point being though that, okay, game changing, we'll talk about that. But is it really that big a deal, that exciting a news that a feature which may or may not make it into Windows, and it may happen, oh, I don't know, in a couple of years, is that really something that, that is, quote unquote, newsworthy uh, for the general public, for, for the average Windows users? And that's where I say, no, they've, they've got enough to worry about without worrying about what's going what's gonna to come down the pipe. Now, the feature itself, you know, a very brief look at it. Um, you know, supposedly you can group applications in sets. Great. Um, I personally am not particularly excited by that. It doesn't really seem game-changing to me. Um, regardless of whether it is or is not, what it, what, you know, and, and we don't know what it's going to turn out to be finally. Um, to be honest, Windows users have enough to deal with. Um, they already have, you know, a, a, a features coming out their ears and I'm not sure this is something that they're clamoring for. And in fact, if it rolls out, when it rolls out, I fully expect there to be a lot of confusion about it and exactly how it's supposed to be used. And I can imagine questions of everything like, why are my applications grouped together this way? Why can't I control them? Why can't I do more than X where X is probably some upper limit to the number of applications you can group? Um, there was some lip service paid in the article to the concept of browser tabs because browser tabs are kind of sort of conceptually similar to this. Um, and you saw where people went with that, right? We end up with people running browsers that have like dozens, if not hundreds of tabs open at the same time. Is this an invitation for something similar to that? And anything they put into place to try and corral that will cause user confusion and user frustration. So, in the long run, as a feature, I'm not particularly excited. As a feature that may or may not make it, may or may not make it in somebody's lifetime, I'm just, it's just not that big a deal to me. So another example of uh, a gee whiz headline that really doesn't mean much. That's a, probably a, a good way of summing up what I've just spent the past couple of minutes talking about, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought the, the concept is an interesting concept. I, I agree that it, it probably won't happen, but... You know, um, recently uh, on the Mac, we got the ability to have tabs, like the browser tabs, but across all sorts of applications and the Finder window and everything. So, like, tabs became kind of just, uh, they're all over the place. And sometimes, in some apps, tabs are useful and some not so. But it never really occurred to me until I read this, this article that we're talking about 
of the idea of having tabs where each tab is from a different application. Um, it's kind sounds of like, sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it, it could be. I think it's the kind of thing that it, it would be like 95% of the population would be like, oh, I don't want that, you know, and then 5% will be like, this is exactly what I wanted. You know, the, the, the people that have like 15 Excel uh, spreadsheets open at the same time and are, you know, just have seven different email addresses they're corresponding from and, and everything. They may love having these groups of tabs uh, together. Um, so I don't know. I, I think there's a niche market for it, and it could be that it's not it's not meant to be built into Windows or Mac OS, but it could be something where a third party, you know, productivity extension could enable it or a simpler version of it, and that some people will will like that. It's also and, and to be fair, it's it's very possible that you know when whatever it is finally rolls out, we may all decide that. Yes, this is really cool. I mean, where would we be without browser tabs today, for example? I mean, it's just something we take for granted and we use every day. Um, maybe this is something like that. Um, I'm just of the opinion that today, given the information we have, it's way too soon to get excited about. All right. Well, let me pop into the next one. Uh, I saw a report on an interesting new app for Android phones released by Google. Dataly, that has two L's, was developed after Google engineers traveling to countries like India and Argentina noticed locals did something interesting with their cell phones. They left them in airplane mode most of the time. If they wanted to check in or they found a Wi-Fi hotspot, they'd go out of airplane mode, check their mail or whatever, and then go back into airplane mode again. Why? To save on expensive mobile data. Android does have some built-in functions to limit mobile data use by apps, but Google's response to this was to build Dataly, which is a one-stop place to limit the ability of apps to use mobile data in the background. If you have it set to be restrictive, you can simply open an app, say Gmail, to check for new, new mail, but Gmail won't use data in the background, that is if you close the screen, if it's not the focus app. So I've been testing that for several days now and I can already see reduced data usage. So this really should be helpful for people with limited mobile data quotas. I was going to ask you if you've been using it already because I've got it and I haven't seen much of a difference, but then I'm a data hog. <laughs> uh, the, the, the thing that I didn't like about it is that it, to me at least, was relatively unclear about what exactly it's doing. Uh, what exactly I'm missing when I put it into this kind of controlled data mode. Well, it just won't let the apps use background data. So if you've got your Gmail closed, it's not going to be checking mail every X number of minutes, downloading that mail. But Probably the concept, not getting, getting push notices from Twitter every, if someone likes your tweet or something. For example, yeah. I mean, that, that would be a good thing, but the, I mean, that's also kind of a bad thing. For example, uh, the concept of close on Android doesn't really exist, right? An right. app is, is either um, running or it's not. It may be kind of sort of suspended um, or it may be in the background. In other words, it just doesn't have the screen. And what it sounds like you're saying is the only app that could use data is the one that has the screen, which means that you would never get notice of, um, of email. Well, yes and no. Have, unless you happen to have Gmail running in front of Yes and no. You can actually set which apps have access. 
I have some apps that I really want to be able to get background notifications. I'm an on-call volunteer medic, and we have an internet-based paging app that gives us details about emergencies. And I obviously want to get those notifications immediately, so I've set daily to allow that, but at the same time deny background access to most other apps. So it's okay. really flexible and very easy to use. I mean, you can just open it up and look through all your apps and see which ones are locked out and which ones are allowed background data. Okay, so I didn't realize that you had that kind of granularity. I will say that um, looking at my data usage, uh, literally right now on my phone, uh, the single biggest user of data is the Android OS. Yeah, which makes that part at least kind of hard to manage. Number two is Google Play services, which I suppose is nothing more than app updates. And probably ads. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got to pay for the ads. Yep. Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I kind of sort of wish it were built into, the, uh, into Android to begin with. Well, there there are functions for doing that, but they're pretty buried in settings and all that. And most people have no idea where it is or that they can even do it. Right. Gary, this, this is built right into iOS, right? So we iPhone <laughs> people can just say that this app can't use data, uh, cellular data, problem solved, right? Well, uh, you know, I'm I'm gathering that the difference here is, you know, you, you can go into cellular you can go to look at all the cellular data and everything is listed by apps and there's an on-off switch next to it. So I can turn off a single app's access to cellular data without affecting its access to Wi-Fi, which is kind of nice right there. So that's a big step. What's missing should be a should be instead of on-off, it should be uh, on, off, and on only while I'm using the app. That would be that. What I think would give all the functionality because I can go into some of these apps and say, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't want you to use background or any, you know, anything at any other time except when I'm looking at you. Right now, I if you turn it off and then you go to look at it, I believe you either get a message or maybe it depends on the if the app is smart enough to realize it doesn't have access. Um, you know, but but it's similar. I mean. It depends what, what level of uh, iPhone user you are. If you're like ninja level iPhone user and you're going into these settings and just, you know, micromanaging all these apps and which has access and which doesn't, um, whether or not you even know this exists. I suspect it's one of those situations where you get a bill and you start looking and your diagnosis is that there's one specific app that's causing you all sorts of grief. And rather than uninstalling it, you dive in and figure out how to turn off its cellular data. Yep, and I've seen this, um, particularly when it comes to uh, three apps, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. And that a new user who gets addicted to one of these three apps um, and begins to use them a lot and then gets that big bill, like you said, the reason those three apps are bad is because how you scroll through them and it just loads stuff like an Instagram or Snapchat. I mean, you could just scroll through it. I've seen people on Instagram just say, Oh, cool. And just scroll, scroll, scroll. And I'm like, you're loading all those images. You're scrolling. It's nice that it's super fast, but it's just image after image after image is loading as you do that. And you're running through bandwidth very easily. You know, with other apps, say if you're looking at a newspaper app, you know, you load an article, you read it, 
you go back to the front page, you load another article, you read it. It's, it's harder to go through bandwidth that quickly. And only after you realize how easy it is, say, in Instagram, to go through a gig of data, um, you know, that do you, you know, eventually realize that there's this whole thing about how much data you're using and how much you're paying and what your, your limit is and all that. It's interesting because these solutions that we've been talking about wouldn't really help that unless it, you know you somehow forced people to uh, only use Instagram or Facebook or whatever when they're on Wi-Fi. It would be interesting if there was a real cap, right? If you could go and turn this thing on and by default, every app was capped to say 50 megabytes and you could adjust it. But as soon as like you used Instagram and went through 50 megabytes, you got a warning saying, you've already gone through 50 megabytes in December. And you'd be like, really? Wow, I had no idea. That's like Don't... scrolling down twice, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then, so that would be a, a great feature for for that app if it if it offers it is to, is to set not just on and off, but but limits, and then have a default limit that everything is set to, and and you know give you the chance to do that. I suspect though, if you're using that app, you're already aware of all of this, and that you can go blow through bandwidth pretty quickly with with those kinds of apps. And that's probably why you're doing it. Yep. Well, cool. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that one up, uh, Randy. I, I did not look at it close enough to see just what kind of granular control that I had over each app. So very cool. Yeah. I think it's a lot of fun and very useful for developing countries. Mm-hmm. So Kevin, I hear you have something to talk about. Yeah, Uh-oh. I, uh, <laughs> I found this interesting article about um, exploit, uh, sex exploitation of, of young people in Seattle. And the article, the best article I found about it, oddly, was by the BBC. So um, somewhere in Britain, they're doing a better job of, of reporting um, about Seattle sex trade than, than in Washington. Um, so this article is about how they... Uh, 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 prosecutors, investigators are using uh, chatbots to impersonate young women in order to um, teach people not to try to uh, find sex workers online. Uh, according to this article, a, uh, a prosecuting attorney for uh, for the Seattle county that Seattle's in said that uh, they did some research. They found over 130 websites where you can buy sex in the Seattle area alone. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, one of those websites averaging 34,000 ads a month last year. And it said um, there might be 300 to 500 children uh, being exploited at one time. So they started placing fake ads um, in I'm not actually sure if it was newspapers or online. Uh, when they play, placed a, a fake ad, they would get 200, it must have been online, uh, 250 responses in the first two hours. Um, so, so many responses, people looking for 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 sex. And uh, they said- With you know, kids, especially. With, with kids. And they said there's no way for law enforcement to deal with that. So, they created a chat bot. And after a lot of experimentation, they- sadly found out that the chat bot that gets the most response and the most interest is a, is a chat bot that poses as a 15 year old girl and someone will start texting the bot. And after a little while, the, 
bot will say, I, I'm only 15. Is that a problem? And makes it, you know, super clear. And people say, okay. And, um, and keeps chat, chatting with them. And it's always interesting. It says uh, they make, they, they make it uh, difficult to, I mean, they try to make the bot realistic. So the replies are slow and the English is sloppy and bad. And um, it asks for, I love this. It asks for, for pictures of the, uh, of the, the, the John, the person who's interested in, in, in uh, so basically bot will chat you up for a while. And then after, but instead of, setting up the the actual meeting the date or whatever uh then it basically gives you a lecture about how uh chat about, about how uh this hurts real people and it hurts children and it's illegal and and uh, tries to deter people after kind of sucking them into uh to doing this deal so um and hopefully sends them on their way as i'm sure they've the potential Johns leave as better people and decide never to. Uh, <laughs> so is it the police doing this? I was a long player. Uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, uh, yes, the police. Uh, yeah. So I have to say that as a resident of a Seattle suburb mm-hmm. um, in King County, the, the county that Seattle's in, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked at the numbers. I really am. There have been a couple of um, operations out here. Um, uh, basically, more traditional kinds of things luring in potential Johns, but this has been in the physical realm where they actually have, you know, the standard police officers doing the decoy work and, and luring. Yeah. Them. I see those stories all the time. Yeah, People exactly. aren't learning from that clearly. Uh, yeah. Apparently not. And one of the theories that I read here, uh, one of the reasons that it seems to be a popular area, not necessarily for um, children, but just for, um, um, you know, sex trade in general um, is that we have a lot of single lonely tech workers, Hmm. which is a, on one hand kind of makes sense. And on the other hand is also kind of sad. Um, A lot of these, you know, a lot of people coming in for companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and so forth. They're coming in from out of the area. They don't have an infrastructure here of their own. They don't have a, a network of friends and family or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them are apparently uh, turning to, uh, to the sex trade to, uh, to get some companionship. But I'm sure it has right. nothing to do with Seattle per se. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure this happens in every big city. Well, I think it's Seattle. I think Seattle probably may have a higher incidence. Simply because, because tech? Tech density, yep. It wouldn't surprise me if the Bay Area had something similar uh, for uh, all the uh, the different uh, people that they're bringing into the Bay Area for the various tech jobs here, because tech is you know very big. Um, we it just it it I can't say whether it's true or not. Even though I live here, I can at least say, yep, that kind of sort of makes sense. Well, yes, it makes sense. I'm sure it's not unique to Seattle. It's probably anywhere this could happen anywhere where they bothered to measure and test it. Um, but uh, it's sad. And I, I, I don't know. I feel like I doubt whether this is going to change anyone's mind, whether people are just going to feel frustrated and, you know, find another way to, to get what they're looking for. Oh, or, of course. Yeah. But uh, well, I would think it would scare them a little bit that, you know, yeah. especially after, brought, brought to you by Seattle PD. Right. Especially after you've uh, texted your own picture to it. <laughs> Yeah. Hopefully it's a picture of your face. So <laughs> Yikes. 
the the I I don't believe this. Nobody's going to change over an encounter with a ta- with a chatbot. They just aren't. Um, if anything, they're going to get more careful and maybe go further underground. Uh, so uh, to, to say that this is you know has a chance of being effective, I think that that's probably a pretty slim chance. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Waste their time a little bit. I don't know. I think there's a way in which this can kind of be effective. I mean, and maybe you know, expanding beyond just sex trade, but you know, all sorts of illegal activities like you know, online scams and um, things like that, where uh, having a kind of a, a deterrent. I mean, okay, think think of like a drug deal, right? There's and any drug deal, any TV show you ever see, right? The reason you're watching is probably because it's a police TV show and they're setting somebody up, and whenever there's something illegal going on, the person doing the illegal thing has to wonder, am I being set up? Is this a sting operation? Right. And if there's a 99 point, you know, whatever percent chance that it's not a sting, then it encourages them to do it. But the higher percentage, they think that they, it's a sting that, you know, they won't, they won't do it. They won't take the risk. I mean, anything from, you know, porch piracy of people stealing packages, you know, and there's a certain percentage of those that are, setups to catch them to you know whether it's sex trade or whether it's online scams if you can increase the chance that it's a that it's a setup um then you make it not worth people trying to do the illegal activity and a bot is a way to do that because if you go and say well we're going to have three police officers in this metro area uh you know go on to these uh you know sex chat places or whatever and you know, that's a small number compared to the total number of them. But if you have bots doing it, then suddenly you can increase dramatically the chance that, um, you know, it's kind of a sting or you can, you can maybe get into trouble for it. Right. So you can use it for all sorts of sorts, uh, chat bots for all sorts of things just to increase the chance. The overhead. The Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, if suddenly if it's a 10% chance that you're talking to, you know, if you're trying to scam somebody on Craigslist, say, uh, and it's a ten percent chance that it's a bot now that is going to entrap you somehow, and um, then it becomes a lot, you know, less likely that people are going to want to do scams on Craigslist or you know seek underage you know sex partners or whatever. And it may not address the root issue, especially when it comes to the sex trade. Right? It's not going to go and somebody's going to say, "Oh, I see the error of my ways. I'm going to seek. Th- I'm going to go to a therapist and seek help or something." It may not do that but it can protect victims. You know, if it, it's, it's really difficult to do that crime, then you may not be helping the people that are the, you know, on the one end of it, but you may actually be preventing more victims in the long run. Yeah. Thanks. And I think that's box. a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So this is really similar in the headlines last month. Readers were sending me a link to rescam.org and this is for online scams and stuff that come in by email spam. And the idea is you forward your spam to this address at rescam.org, and then it has a chat bot that engages the scammer, and the idea is to waste their time so they can't <laughs> hit actual victims. I had someone ask me about that this week too. Um, like the, the chat bot, I'm skeptical it's going to have a, a long-term impact. Um, I think scammers are going to basically ignore it, work around it, whatever. But I'm kind of surprised because ultimately, isn't it really just fighting spam with spam? 
Well, at least they asked for it, but you know, yeah. it it does have a certain kind of satisfaction. I haven't tried it myself, but you know, people seem to like the idea. The other thing I was wondering about is, could it be abused? In other words, could somebody, you know, could you reply to one of my emails or, or forward one of my emails to the service and suddenly I'm getting contacted by this chat bot or this, this text bot or whatever it is. And what's that service called? The spam the spammers? It's rescam.org. I'll put a link on the show page. Great. I'll check that out. And if I suddenly start getting contacted by them, I'll know it was one of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk to my chat bot about it. <laughs> <laughs> So Kevin, it sounds like you picked up some interesting toys this week. Yeah, in fact, just just today, um, as I mentioned at the at the top, I I have a, a co-host a Atari podcast, and um, I, I I you know when I was in sixth grade, my dad bought an Atari eight hundred computer, and I f- fell in love with it, and I still have that machine, and and I you know never fell out of love with it. I, I love the 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 eight uh, bit machines, and. Uh, I happened to find a guy who's pretty local to me whose uncle had used to have um, an Atari computer store. And uh, his uncle, <laughs> he told me the story uh, today when I was hanging out at his house. And he said uh, his uncle was just like, yeah, I, I got an old Atari. Do you want one? And, and he thought he was like going to end up with an Atari VCS and, you know, a combat game. And he's like, sure. And what he ended up with was like three van loads worth of, stuff a computer all the dark computer stuff from computer stories it's like gee thanks uncle wally or whatever so um so uh, this guy you know he's a college kid and he's looking to to uh pay for college and all that so i got to just spend like my afternoon poking through piles of old gear and i was it was so Fun for for me, it was fun. For anybody else, it probably would have been terrible. But uh, just piles of old floppy disks and uh, modems and things, and uh, I came away with uh, a lot of exciting stuff: speech synthesizers and old computer programs. And uh, uh, it was just super exciting for me. And I, I don't know, <laughs> it was it was good. It was a good day. What you were you able to also? point out some of the things that were particularly valuable that he could sell or what? Yeah. Um, the stuff that, I mean, if I wanted it, I, I bought it, but he had things plenty there that I, I already have in, in my collection or I'm just not interested in. So uh, I spent a lot of time going like, okay, well this floppy drive goes with this computer and you know, here's the monitor for it and you should sell those on as a bundle on eBay or, or uh, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, he had a lot of multiples of things different uh, this one particular printer he has like a stack that was you know nine high of this this printer so uh hmm. so what do you end up doing with all this stuff that you've you've purchased and collected and so forth so um, of course i i I play with some of it i'm excited to hook up the voice synthesizer and make it talk and i'll probably do a youtube video of that Uh, but primarily what i what i do uh in my work as a computer historian uh, is I find things that haven't been digitized yet and I digitize them. So it might be uh, manuals. It might be uh, user group newsletters. It could be uh, uh, flyers for products that came out or didn't come out and uh, might a lot of software. Um, and we did me and other people who like to do this, we digitize them and we're trying to 
basically, oops, sorry, I just hit one of my boxes of Atari gear and knocked it on the floor. Um, uh, basically digitize the stuff and preserve it and make sure that it's, it's available for the future for emulators and, and uh, for people to. Where do people like. find it? Uh, a lot of it is up at, uh, at archive.org. They do a, they're the, the internet archive. They do a uh, great service by uh, providing storage for this information. Uh, you can also find a lot of the stuff at uh, atarimania.com and uh there, there are other sites, but those are the two big ones to start with. Cool. So how about the hardware? Does some of that go to like computer museum if they don't already have it? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, computer museums, the, 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 the base, the computers are like the Atari 800s and that sort of thing. Yeah. There's there, millions of them. There's millions of them. And museums really don't want them. I mean, they, they want one and they have one, you know, and right. there's, there's the computer museum in Mountain View and there's the, the strong museum of play in New York and, and uh, they've got what they need of that. So basically collectors might want that stuff or people who just want to reminisce and play the old games they used to play when they were kids. Um, of course, then there's more rare hardware um, that uh, certain museums are certainly interested in. And I suppose when I'm, when I'm, gone and gone one day my wife will gladly donate <laughs> some of my rare items to uh to those museums in the meantime i'm just going to play with them play with my new speech synthesizers why not yeah play with your new old speech synthesizer that's right so what else has everybody made up to yeah well let's see I think I told you guys once before that I, I carry with me a, uh, a voice recorder. Mm. I was looking for a long time for an app for my phone, which I carry with me everywhere, um, that I could actually cause uh, to record a voice note without having to look at it. The problem with the touch screens, of course, is that in order to push a button, you actually have to know what you're going to push on. And there's no way to do that by feel. Uh, on current generation phones. Something like a, while you're driving, I don't want to necessarily have to look at my phone. I have yet to be able to come up with a good solution for that. So apparently, uh, while I was out of town a few weeks ago, I lost my voice recorder and ended up getting another one. Um, it's one of those things where sometimes the right solution is not another app but in fact, just another little small device to throw in a pocket that I can uh, reach for and turn on without having to look at whether I'm driving or in the middle of the night when I don't have my glasses on in bed. Just thought that was kind of an interesting observation that, you know, sometimes a, an app isn't the solution. You know, my phone has, I have a Samsung phone and if I want to take a picture, even if it's locked, I can just punch the home button twice and it brings up the camera. I wonder if that could be set to a different app like a recorder. I don't seem to have anything like that. I know you pointed me at a, a scripting language uh, several months ago that allowed me to do something like shake the cam or yeah, shake the phone and fire up a specific app. And that worked so inconsistently that I basically gave up on the, on the mm. idea. It also wasn't a particularly user-friendly scripting um, language either. It was really kind of obtuse, even you know, for someone who's been a programmer for all my career, I had a hard time figuring it out. 
So that one kind of slid by the wayside. But no, I've, I've looked, I've got a, I've, what I've got is a Google Pixel. So it's still the same Android base, probably a most recent version with Oreo. But um, I've not found anything that would really allow me to customize it. I'd be happy if I could customize, you know, what pushing uh, both volume up and volume down at the same time, for example. That would be sufficient. But no such thing. Oh, well. Oh, well, indeed. Anything new in your corner of the world? Not really. I've been uh, plugging along. I've got a new idea for my newsletter that I'm not ready to talk about. But other than that, uh, I'm just working along. You tease. So I just uh, finished reading a book that I'm sure a lot of people have just finished reading. Um, it's Andy Weir's new book. He's the, the guy oh, that yeah. wrote The Martian. Uh, you know, fantastic book, made into an excellent movie. And uh, he wrote, uh, he came out with a new book uh, called Artemis. And it is about, well, it takes, it's a story, independent story going on, happens to be going on in a lunar colony. Um, and his, as is his style, he goes into a lot of detail about uh, the science, technology behind you know what's going on so he doesn't just say there's a lunar colony and people are doing stuff on it he goes into the detail about how it was constructed what the walls are made of how the systems work uh how people go about their business how the economy works he spent something like two years just doing that just figuring out the location and and you can tell and he goes into uh, a lot of detail about things like welding (laughs) how important welding is in uh, building something like that um, and, and then even the society and how, how things, you know, in his book, it's fascinating. The, it, it was, uh, you know, who, who would you think built a, a lunar colony? And probably the last country you would think of would be Kenya. <laughs> it was <laughs> Kenya that built this lunar colony because, uh, you know, the present day he never, I don't think he ever puts a year definitely on it, but present day uh, Kenya, which is located on the equator, so has a, an advantage for launching rockets that it's, it's currently not using. Um, but some really smart person in Kenya decides to create kind of an economic incentive zone for creating this you know, conglomerate of corporations to, to launch out of Kenya. And that leads to Kenya being able to build a lunar colony, you know, through private companies and a lot of those private companies are from other countries, but, but, you know, it was really interesting. So it, there's all this talk of, you know, how much power Kenya has in this future here because they pretty much own this lunar colony um, instead of any of the, the so-called first world countries today. The superpowers. Uh, doing, yeah. The superpowers. So, so that was interesting and just, you know, how they went about building it and, uh, and the culture and the economy of, you know, down to these little details that are needed to pull off kind of, there's a kind of a crime caper plot to the whole story, but it's very intricate, you know, down to the technology level of, you know, how it's all pulled off and how situations are handled, even the dealing with gravity on the moon and uh, and people growing up on the moon in that gravity and how that affects things. So anyway, definitely a good read. I wouldn't say, you know, if The Martian's one of those books that, you know, comes along once every decade or so, that's just a fantastic book. And, uh, you know, it would probably be too much to try to measure up every book that Andy Weir writes to that one. Um, 
But it's definitely, if you enjoy The Martian, you'll enjoy Artemis. And if you enjoy good, thoughtful science fiction that's heavy on science, it's definitely a, a, a good read. Well done. And I did, I did the audiobook, which is read by Rosaria Dawson, which she does a fantastic job with the audio version. Well, I really liked The Martian. I thought the book was a lot better than the movie because it went into a lot more detail. So I'm sure I'm going to love it. So I don't know if we lost you. No. Uh, so okay. yeah, I think uh, that's all I've got this week. Well, I want to end on a really light story. Uh, Electric.co says Google is now 100% sun and wind powered. They spent $3.5 billion, mostly in the United States, to develop wind and solar power. Now 3.0 gigawatts worth of power two-thirds in the U.S., and Google is now the largest corporate purchaser of renewables in the world, far outstripping number two, which is Amazon. And Apple, in the chart of, of uh, 15 companies, is number 14 behind Dow Chemical and uh, Ikea. Wow. But the government told me that, that coal was the, way, the wave of the future. I heard that. Clean coal. Yeah. Yes. Clean coal. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> But they're still spending money, and now they're getting free power. But when you think about it, what do Google and Amazon have in common? Massive data centers yep. everywhere. So they're the ones that are really needing all that power for sure. So it's, it's in their best interest to do exactly that. Out of curiosity, Microsoft is working really hard to compete in that space. I know they have a ton of data centers. You know, happen to know where they were on that list? Number four. I'll put the chart on the show page. It's really interesting. Cool. Yep. U U.S. Department of Defense, number three. I'm not sure how that's corporate, but there you go. Hmm. It's all those data centers that the NSA is running. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. Did you hear that Amazon set up has set up uh, data centers just for, for use by uh, the NSA? Yes, I've read that this week. It was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah it's hilarious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a link. I'll put it on the show page. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's wrap up. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh3. We're also on Twitter at the teh podcast and at Facebook at teh podcast at the teh podcast on Facebook. Thanks a lot, guys. Yep. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye.